This is episode 98 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Caitlin Saxstein. She's an SLP at Peconic Bay Medical Center, part, part of the Northwell Health System. She received her Master's of Science in Communication Sciences and Disorders from Adelphi University. She's a Speakers Bureau Committee member of the Long Island Speech-Language Hearing Association, an active member of ASHA Special Interest Group 13, DRS, and a four-time ASHA ACE Award recipient for continuing education. She currently works as a medical speech pathologist in acute care and subacute rehab, as well as has experience in outpatient and home health settings. She's trained in respiratory muscle strength training, MDTP, LSVT, and fees. Kaylin has an extensive background with East End Hospice, volunteering with this organization for nearly 15 years. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, everybody. Welcome back again. I hope you've all had a wonderful summer so far and a wonderful July. July was super busy for us here. Um, I know we took a two-week podcast break, but we also had a gigantic promotion going for the MetaSLP Collective, and it's wonderful how many new members we gained. I'm so excited. We're growing, uh, what's the word, insanely rapidly. (laughs) which is great. I'm so happy that so many members have joined and we've got so many new mentors and contributors to the MetaSLP Collective. And it just shows that there's such such a need for so many SLPs to be doing such wonderful things in this field. And I'm, I'm just so excited. So um, I did want to mention that we are having our first MetaSLP Collective live event. And it's going to be September 6th and 7th. It's going to be here in Buffalo because I'm exhausted and can't travel anymore this year. <laughs> So I'm sorry you have to come to Buffalo, but you'll have a great time, and um, Niagara Falls is here too. But anyways, if you are interested in this, what we are doing is it's been registered for 1.0 ASHA CEUs, which is 10 hours of ASHA CEUs, and we're doing it very differently in that it's going to be all interactive roundtable style. So we're going to have different researchers, different mentors, different professors, even grad students all sitting at these same roundtables discussing some really interesting clinical cases in all different settings and amongst all different conditions that we treat depending on which areas you choose. So I really, really, really like this type of learning environment. And also um, I've had a few professors kind of chime in on some different learning models that have really been encouraged by ASHA and um, basically uh, I'm trying to think of the word, how, however they want grad students to learn um, the different education models. So I'm really excited to be able to put some of those into play. So um, if you are interested in attending, like I said, it's September 6th and 7th. It's here in Buffalo. Um, it's only open to members of the MetaSLP Collective, but I would hate for you to miss out on this event because you missed enrollment and things like that. So um, if you want to come, <laughs> just email support at metaslpcollective.com. We'll let you into the collective and you can also sign up for this event because I would love to have you if it's something that you would love to come to. So just wanted to put that out there and 
I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Caitlin. I know we've talked about this topic a few times on here with peg tubes and palliative care versus hospice and what's the difference. And and I love how all of our different speakers kind of have a different twist on it. Anyway, they put it, but I think we're still not <laughs> making very much progress in this area. So I love that we're still discussing it. And I hope that you guys learn from Caitlin. She's a wonderful, wonderful SLP. I'm so glad that I've gotten to know her this year. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. Hello, Caitlin. Hi, Teresa. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited oh. to chat with you today. Yes, I'm so excited to have you on. All right. So tell the people who you are. So I'm Caitlin. I'm a medical speech pathologist. I work at Peconic Bay Medical Center way out in Riverhead on the eastern end of Long Island. So way out here, out east. Out in the beautiful Hamptons. In the beautiful Hamptons. It's so great. It's so, I actually live in West Hampton, so I live in the beach town. It's so nice, but it's a little packed right now during the summer, Um, but it's all great. I spend all my time at the ocean, which is so lovely. That's awesome. All right. So tell us why you're here. What do you want to talk about today? So today I want to talk about dysphagia, definitely, alternate means of nutrition, hydration, and end of life. So just really that end of life component of these patients that we see, whether we're recommending NPO and the that's not what their wishes are. And then just also what, what our research is showing us so that we are more educated about all the, the different stuff that's out there. Awesome. All right. So what do you want to start with? So I want to start with the implications of the aging population on healthcare. So awesome. the baby boomers. So our baby boomers are going to definitely be affecting our healthcare in the next years to come. So our, who our baby boomers are they, it was a cohort during the post-World War II. It's called the baby boom. So they definitely are driving the change in the age structure of the U.S. population. So research shows that by 2056, the population of 65 years and over is projected to become larger than the population under 18 years. So it's definitely going to affect us in healthcare and our patients because we'll be seeing a lot of more patients that are elderly who are at end of life. And that really will affect us and how we're dealing with our recommendations, whether it is alter means of nutrition, hydration, the most restrictive diet consistencies. So it's so important that we as speech pathologists know what the research is and are able to educate and advocate for our patients. So what this means is, so one in five Americans are projected to be 65 or older by that time, which is a large number. Yeah. So it really will affect us. And I think what's important about this is kind of obviously the implications of the aging population, but also we're kind of at a time now where we're turning the tides of we're no longer telling our patients what they have to do, as opposed to we're finally getting to this place of listening to our patients and honoring their wishes and exactly kind of more of what you're going to elaborate on with end of life and palliative care and really making sure that we honor their wishes instead of telling them what they're going to do. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) And also by honoring their wishes, by telling them or sharing with them all the current information, which is so important. And I know just from researching myself and reading new research articles, I'm always like, wow, I didn't know that. Or this is so interesting. And I love to share it with my coworkers and my patients and everyone. I just think it's so important. I definitely like end of life. This is like my niche. So it's so important to share this information. I found that in grad school, I necessarily, we didn't necessarily talk about this. We didn't talk about counseling. So it's so important that we share this information. Yeah, absolutely. Did you go to, was it at ASHA last year? You were at ASHA last year, right? 
I actually did not go. I was no. Okay. I was in Costa Rica. So the, oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. How cool. But I'll be speaking at Asher this year. With yes, you are. Yes. I love it. I'm so excited. And th- this is the topic you guys are talking about, right? It is. Yes. yes. It's awesome. one of our topics. So we actually will be presenting twice. So we have a few back-to-back presentations on Friday and this is one of them. So awesome. Yes. Yay! I'm so excited. <laughs> so what I was going to say was, I believe, what is that event that's the first night of ASHA that I believe Bracco puts on? Meet the Masters. Okay. And they had this palliative care doctor on that spoke. And he really, like, he, if I forgot everything about ASHA last year, like, everything he said to me totally stuck. Because he was such, like, a yeah. kind and compassionate doctor not not that doctors aren't, but like <laughs> I think I think of doctors as just really being kind of very black and white and they try to just explain the situation and let you, you know, run with it. But this doctor was so compassionate and he, his counseling skills were incredible. Like he talked us through some of the conversations that he would have and he actually had a background in palliative care with children. Wow. So I know, I know, but like just his counseling skills spoke to me like holy crap, like our profession could be so much more profound and impactful if everyone could kind of grasp just these counseling skills. That's great. And I definitely think like the counseling skills are so important. I fortunately have the opportunity. I volunteer with my local hospice, so East Bend Hospice. So I've done a lot of counseling education and classes through them. I volunteer at their camp. It's called Camp Good Grief. It's a camp for children who have lost somebody. Um, I also make bereavement phone calls with them. So I have a lot of experience with counseling, but I know just, you know, within colleagues or people that I know, you know, we don't have that education in our programs. And it definitely is something we need to be sharing. So that's so great that he was at ASHA. Yeah. I'll have to find his name and have him on here because <laughs> you just made me think of him again. I'll have to write that down because I, I really just truly enjoyed that talk so much. So that's okay. great. All right. So getting back to our baby boomers. So why this is important to us. So a lot of statistics show, they call it the de- dependency ratios. So what it is, is it's the indicator of the potential burden on those in the working age population. So us pretty much. And they say that by 2030, when all the baby boomers will be 65 or older, the old age dependency ratio is projected to reach almost 35. So that's an increase of 14 older residents for every 100 working age adults. So that's a a large number. Um, So that's really going to affect us and our profession, especially in the medical field. So it'll have an impact on our families also because we're no longer taking care of our parents at home. We're now, whether they're in assisted living, they have home health aides, they're in long-term care facilities, it definitely will see the impact. So it leads us to the question, what is the implication of the aging population on healthcare? So along with the implications, there are certain health conditions that are expected to be a challenge to our healthcare system. So as these patients age, there's also going to be some changes in healthcare conditions. So for instance, cancer is going to rise. So also is dementia. So Alzheimer's, the Alzheimer's Disease International Project projects that will increase to 115 million individuals by 2050. So that's huge. And we all know the common do we give our patients with Alzheimer's dementia, alternate means of nutrition hydration, what do we do? A lot of times, speech pathologists work so closely with patients with dementia. So this is going to really affect us as speech pathologists. Also, other health conditions that we're going to see rise in is our increase in falls, which is where it all begins. 
and obesity and also diabetes. So this will definitely have some challenges in our healthcare system. Awesome. I did you are you on Twitter, Caitlin? I am not. Twitter is interesting. I'm, I'm not super active on there, but a lot of researchers post a lot of really good papers on there that I'll that I'll see that I don't know that I would have known before. But um, there was one last week someone posted about how patients that are getting hospitalized with hip fractures are now like much more at risk for dysphagia, which I thought was really really interesting. So I have to kind of dive into the the causality of that a little bit more. But I just thought that was really fascinating that. You know, I think a lot of times people are like, well, they're here for hip fracture. Like, why would they have dysphagia? But I think a lot of it, you know, is post-surgery complications and things like that. So, yeah, I'm sure you can speak to that in acute care, too. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And we where I work, I work in a hospital, but we also have a skilled nursing facility attached to our hospital. It's a subacute rehab. So we see a ton of hip fractures status was falls. And actually, according to the American Hospital Association, as far as falls, they said that we'll see one third of adults 65 or older will have a fall, which is a lot. So it'll be an increase of 20 to 30%. So we'll definitely see that impact of these patients who are status quo fall with dysphagia. It'll be interesting to know the etiology or the causality of that. So I'm definitely interested in that if you find that. Yes, I will find it. So actually back to dysphagia now that we're talking about it. So how this affects us is you know, we're going to be consulted on these patients. We're going to see them. And depending upon what's happening with them, if they are able to progress and make some progress, or if they're going to be end of life, and we're going to have to have that difficult conversation with the patient and their loved ones. So dysphagia affects one in 20 Americans. We know that. And just some studies done of how patients feel that their dysphagia impacts them as far as their social impact and their psychological impact, it is the greater the severity of the dysphagia has a greater impact on the quality of life of our patients. So it's so important that we keep that in mind. I know just myself, sometimes I forget how symbolic food is or the value of food. So I think that's so important because every human needs nutrition and hydration and we associate nutrition with life. And if we're not eating, then you're starving. And a lot of times our loved ones of our patients associate not eating with that you're going to, they're going to starve to death and they really want to help them. So I think it's so important that we as speech pathologists really take a step back and look at the symbolic value of food. I know I was talking to my mom about this and she was telling me a story about how one time she went to Weight Watchers and the the person who runs the meetings was was asking what their favorite part about Thanksgiving was. And so everybody was, you know, shouting out different foods that they like, pumpkin pie and different sides. And she was like, um, what about like the pilgrims and the whole meaning of Thanksgiving? So it's so important that we take a step back and realize that food to us, we live in like a food oriented society. So giving someone food and drink, that's associated with nurturing and caring. And a lot of times we take that portion out and we need to make sure that we're putting it back in and giving it back to our patients because that is so important. I had a patient that I was doing a fees on maybe a few weeks ago and the CNA had wheeled the patient in and the SLP was just meeting me, you know, in a few minutes. So I just started talking to the patient, establishing rapport. And, you know, I just said, oh, you know, how are you doing? And she's like, oh, good. I just came from lunch. It was fantastic. We had this and this and the chocolate pudding here is amazing. And (laughs) the pie is incredible. And I was like, oh, good. And she was like, have you had the pancakes here? She's like, we had the pancakes this morning. They're out of this world. And I was like, 
awesome. I'm so <laughs> glad you like the food here. And she was like, we're having pizza for dinner. The pizza here is so good. And I was like, this woman has not stopped talking about food like the whole time I've been here. So then when the SLP came in, I said, Do, is she really like love food? And she's like, it's literally all she talks about. So we cannot take away things that she likes. And I was like, okay, noted. I got, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 I actually ended up loving doing this fees because she had horrible chewing issues. Her, her teeth were a mess. It was, she had horrible AP transit, but we were trying to figure things out. And I'm like, gosh, I really don't want to puree this woman's diet. Like I, I, I don't know. And so I was trying well, to talk to things. You can't. Right. Right. So I was talking, I, we were talking about things and she's like, well, you know, if you make it a little bit softer, that would be fine. Cause then I could eat more of it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> so we did end up coming to like a really good, you know, cohesive agreement, but I just, I was like, I've never met someone that literally was that like obsessed with food and cool. I mean, I love yeah. it. That's so great. I mean, <laughs> I, I know I talk about food all the time. I know, it's I know, the first I know. question of the day. What are we having for lunch? <laughs> I know. So yeah. So anyways, back to that. I just, yeah. we can't, she is someone that I could not even, I mean, I feel like her life would be over if we, you know, just did something drastic to her diet for no reason, you know? Of course. And I mean, even when we're recommend, like recommending a diet change, just like you just said, we have to think of these people and what they want and how yeah. important it is for them. And we really need to keep that in mind because sometimes that's forgotten and it's just so sad and so terrible. Yeah. And everything that we do in this society is food oriented. I mean, we have somebody over the first thing you ask when they get to your house is what can I get you? Can I get you a cup of coffee? Or, you know, you go to your grandparents and they're sending you home with plates of food and what else do you need? So it definitely is so important to remember that because feeding is tied to our cultural moral beliefs and when we're giving recommendations, we need to remember that. So back to food and drink. I mean, normally we eat socially with food and fork. We eat with a cup. So when we are recommending these feeding tubes, it's really depersonalizing that for our patients. And it's changing that social image of it because now they're not necessarily going out to eat. They're not participating at family functions, holidays, things of that nature. And it's not normal. It's not a normality for them to be now consuming food and liquid via tube rather than eating it by mouth. And that's so important to remember, again, when we're recommending NPO with alternate means of nutrition hydration, is this patient a young patient? Are they awake and alert? Are they, you know, this is not a social norm for them. Yeah. Yeah. Let me back you up and ask you a question, Caitlin. I I got kind of a really nasty message last week about something that somebody had heard on the podcast and it was you know, what if, you know, we, we want to honor our patients' wishes, right? We want to take their wishes into consideration, but what about if it's someone that has had tons of choking episodes, things like that, you know, what, where does, where do we come in with saying, you know, they really should not have, you know, this diet when they have such a history of choking episodes, I think it's everything is patient dependent. My first yeah. question would be, did the patient have a swallowing instrumental? Of course, to see yeah. what is the physiology of the swallow? What is it that they're choking on? Is it a specific type of food? Is it something that's dry? Could we change it by moistening the food? Maybe by cutting it into smaller pieces? Is it the patient's rate that's causing them to choke? So it definitely would be patient dependent, I would definitely say. And again, my first question always is, well, did you have a swallowing instrumental? Did you have a feast? Did you have a video swallow? 
So I'm not sure if that answers your question. Yes. I think every patient we would need to, if they really would want it, we would have to be able to somehow give them a compensatory strategy perhaps that hopefully would help them so that they would be able to continue with their preferences. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think what's so important is just this documentation piece about just having not just a conversation between you and the patient, but also having other people present and in the room. And like we've talked about documenting informed consent, you know, have maybe a social worker or discharge planner or whoever that kind of person is in the room to witness this conversation too, that yes, the patient is aware of, you know, they have a history of XYZ, however, they do not care and they want ABC, you know? (laughs) And that is so important. I would say documentation is aside from swallowing instrumentals, number two. Yeah. I mean, you definitely need, everything should be documented, especially with some type of another affiliate to back you up on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yes, that was wonderful. Yeah, of course. (laughs) So I guess what I was going to talk about alternate means, but now that you're kind of talking, we were just kind of got started into somebody having somebody else present in the room leads us into palliative care. So I know that most of my, you know, we have meetings, we're with our palliative care team. We have family meetings with the patient, their family, their loved ones, and they're always great people to have in the room so that they are a witness as well as they're able to explain some of those medical questions that the patient and family may have. And then also there for the support. We work very closely with our palliative care team. They're wonderful. A lot of, most of the time, the first question we get asked is, is palliative care hospice? Yes. And it is not. So the goal of palliative care is to improve the quality of life for both the patient and their family member. So it does not necessarily mean it is the end of life, which is so important because I often find that patients, once you say palliative care, they may shy away depending on who the patient is because they think it's end of life and they're not ready for that conversation, but they might not necessarily be end of life. They may just need that extra support system, that extra layer that the palliative care team can provide. Whereas hospice is where the treatment is no longer curative. So I find that that is a huge misunderstanding or a misconception that I find not only with patients, but with staff, with graduate students. So that's so important to know. Awesome. Yeah, I I think that's such a huge issue. I think so many people just assume palliative care is hospice. Can you elaborate more, like just give kind of some specific examples of when someone may go palliative care versus hospice or vice versa? Of course. For instance, somebody who maybe has congestive heart failure or COPD, pulmonary disease, who maybe necessarily isn't end stage of the disease, but is having some difficulty breathing. They're now wearing oxygen at home. They're going home from the hospital now wearing oxygen. So it's something new. They need that extra layer of support, not only for maybe the patient, but their loved ones, because now this is all new. They're going to have to have an oxygen tank at home, maybe carry it when they're going to the grocery store. Um, So palliative care in that respect would be there to help this patient and their caregivers kind of navigate this new way of life. Whereas if they were end of life and they were having difficulty breathing, maybe now they're having a dysphagia, having difficulty coordinating the breathing and just communicating, and they decide to go end of life, then that would be hospice. So patient can be followed throughout and then change to hospice at one point. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Was that a a good example? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess I want to talk about alternate means of nutrition hydration. So I was reading some articles and I actually found one from ASHA, which I thought was really interesting because I 
did not know this. So they sent out a survey. I don't know if you, are you familiar with this? They sent out a survey in 2009 to medical speech pathologists about their opinions of peg tube. I'm not, I don't think I do. I don't think I know what you're going to say. So it was very interesting. So it was very conflicted views. So 78% of the SLPs believe that uh, peg tube improved nutritional status among patients with advanced dementia, which we know is not true. And more than 56%, more than half, so it was 56%, would recommend two feeding in a patient with advanced dementia who had a dysphagia, which again, we know is not true. However, on the flip side, only 11% would want their family to recommend or approve a PEG if it was for them. So it's funny because they're very quick to necessarily recommend it for their patients, but they themselves wouldn't want it. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And then also there was another article for physicians done by the American physicians. And they found that physicians thought that a feeding tube would help the nutritional status and reduce aspiration in patients with dementia, which again, we know is not true. So I thought these were so interesting because it's what we know or what we think we know about tube feeding, which is totally inaccurate. Again, these surveys were done years ago in 2009. So hopefully since then we've really improved our knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I think the big issue with tube feedings is like, I see patients that, you know, I'll talk to them and I cannot figure out why they have a tube. Like Mm -hmm. I can't figure it out. And I'll ask the family and I'm like, were they really sick at the hospital? Were they in the ICU? Like what led to this? And they were like, nothing. They were having trouble eating or drinking. They were coughing. So they decided to put a peg tube in. And I was like, what? So like, those are kind of like some of the patients that I see that I'm just like, what the heck? Like, where did we go horribly wrong here without getting an instrumental first and things like that? And then Mm -hmm. to come to find out, I've had two patients recently that had in their most, in their wishes, no tube and they got, and they got tubed. So I know I'm just, I, yeah. So yeah, I can't talk about (laughs) it, but yeah. Um, (laughs) but then, but then it also leads me to the flip side, which I know you can talk to is, you know, when are these peg tubes appropriate for these acutely ill patients? So I think, you know, from speaking as a sniff therapist, we get these patients and it's like, why the heck do you have a tube? And then come to find out the hospital SLP is like, well, they were extremely sick. There was, we had to get them some sort of nutrition. So I don't know if you can speak to that a little bit of, you know, when those times are appropriate and when they wouldn't be. Yeah. And I think it's, again, every patient is different and exactly what you just said, depending on how they're presenting. I mean, some patients, they come in and they're completely lethargic for days and it's, you know, what are we doing kind of matter and whether they drop an NG tube and they perk up or maybe they don't. And sometimes they just go straight for a peg. Maybe we should edit. I don't know if I should be saying this about my hospital, but sometimes that happens and you don't, you know, they don't even take that step from an NG tube to a G tube. It just kind of happens. Do the doctors kind of have like a protocol that they follow or is it just like this person needs to eat? Let's get them a tube. Like, I'm not sure how it works at other facilities. We do not have a protocol. We, we definitely, we have a great palliative care team. So if somebody from my standpoint even on initial evaluation, if I think that they're lethargic or if I'm thinking that, you know, maybe they will have a a significant dysphagia, I consult them right away. Our physicians are really great at consulting palliative care also. So we kind of get, try to get the ball rolling as soon as possible with patients who 
their arousal level changes, it is very difficult because one day you may be recommending NPO, they're having so much difficulty. And the next day, maybe you're putting them on a very, very conservative diet because they're a little bit aroused and maybe they can take meds by mouth or maybe they are waking up at some points during the day and the family wants to feed them. And then then that kind of takes the the alternate means of nutrition hydration out of the way, or sometimes it doesn't because they're not going to be able to maintain that nutrition hydration and they get a tube and then they leave because the second that they have some type of nutrition hydration, they're ready for rehab and they can go, Yeah, yeah. which is hard because they're not necessarily ready for rehab, but it is acute care. So they're not necessarily staying here to rehabilitate and then leave. They're going to some type of rehab facility or SNF facility. So I definitely, I do PRN in a sniff and I definitely know what you're talking about. Sometimes you're like, why did you do a swallowing instrumental? And sometimes, unfortunately, we don't, we don't get yeah. to it. it they, they're discharged before it even can happen, which is very unfortunate, but it does happen. Right, right. Thank you for explaining that because I, I know that there's still a lot of conflict with, you know, why that can happen and why it should or shouldn't happen. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it definitely can yeah. happen. Yeah, It's unfortunate, yeah. but it does happen. Hopefully in the future, we can get a better handle on it. Yeah, I think I would just love to know if there is some sort of like protocol for physicians to follow, like if there is something out there that they should, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I just think like there's so many, I know know, there's just so many patients that fall through the cracks, like, you know, whether they're wasn't an SLP available to do an instrumental, there wasn't instrumental access available. And then all of a sudden the patient gets pegged for no reason. And I've had one patient that's had like every infection possible at the peg tube site, and it's just been a disaster. And it's someone that, yeah, shouldn't probably have had one in the first place, but that's neither here nor there. But it just makes me even more passionate about wanting to know like what what makes these decisions happen. Right. I saw, I also do home care. I saw a patient recently who was not, who was a stroke. He was young. I want to say he was in his early sixties and had a stroke while on vacation and was tubed. I ended up seeing him at home and we did a swallowing instrumental and he was fine to eat by mouth. But now he has this tube and he was going away on vacation and they didn't want to pull it before he went on vacation in case he had an infection. And it was this whole big thing. And I mean, I don't know how, again, I don't know how he was presenting when he first had his stroke. Right. So I can't say anything, but he was home maybe two weeks after. (laughs) So it was very, it was interesting. I was like, hmm, like I wonder what was happening when you were actually in the hospital. Right. I know those are the things I wish we had easy access to figure out, you know. Like, like you said, completely lethargic for four days. Okay, understood. But like, <laughs> up and walking around talking to wife, like, no, what is going on here? So, right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Hmm. What else? Actually, just some information on peg tubes. So there, this research article was interesting. And it's actually about when patient gets a tube in the hospital. So they did... I guess it was a research study done and it was post-peg mortality. Um, and it was actually 11%. So it was 10.8% of patients yeah. die post-peg, which was a large number. So the patients that were getting pegged were patients who had congestive heart failure, or pulmonary disease, the malnutrition, strokes, or neurological conditions. So these are a lot of patients that we are potentially seeing, which is a large number of patients who are post peg mortality. And they said 10% of patients died within two days of the procedure, which is huge. It's significant. And I did not know that. I was shocked when I read it. Yeah. 
I think I've heard a few studies like that, but yeah, I, I know it seems like every study I hear was just even worse and worse and worse. So, yeah. Which leads us back to like, kind of what we were just talking about is the benefit of it. Like, is there, right, what right. are the risks? What are the benefits? What, what are we telling our patients? And obviously every patient, every case is different. Maybe at that point in time, they did need one. So we really can't say that. <laughs> Can you speak a little bit about NG tubes, Caitlin? I know you mentioned, you know, they drop an NG first and then they progress to a PEG. Because I know for like some people ask, how long should someone have an NG before it gets progressed to a PEG? Or why would someone have an NG as opposed to a PEG? Mm -hmm. So I don't, I can just speak really to my facility. Yeah. Sometimes they're hesitant to drop NG tubes. I think it depends who the physician is and who the patient is and what is happening with the case. Okay. Usually NG tube is not left in for a long period of time. Right. I can right. give an example of I recently had a new new CVA come in. She had a significant dysphagia. We did a video swallow study and we were recommending NPO. She actually at the time prior to doing the video swallow study, she had a meeting with palliative care and did not want any type of alternative means of nutrition or hydration. However, post the video, she changed her mind and she was agreeable to an NG tube. So they dropped an NG tube and she had the NG tube probably for about seven days. And she was still in acute care. We were doing intensive dysphagia therapy with her. And then we re- we pulled the NG tube and we repeated the video swallow study to see if she had made any progress. That way it would kind of alleviate that notion of she didn't want a PEG G tube. She was 90 and she didn't want to be a burden on her family. Her biggest thing was, well, what if I get a G-tube and I go to therapy and it doesn't work. I don't want to be living with a G-tube, which is totally understandable. Yeah. And so for that short period of time, we trialed her with an NG-tube just so that she had some type of nutrition and hydration as well as could take her medications, which is so important. So a lot of times patients with Parkinson's, if they come in and they have a UTI or they're septic, they may be unarousable for a few days, but that Parkinson medication is so important that they get, but maybe they're not able to take medicine by mouth at that point. So at that point, they may drop an NG tube just so that they can get that medication in, they can get some nutrition in so that they can perk up and then they generally start eating by mouth again. So it alleviates that that need for the pig tube when maybe it's not necessarily yeah. necessary. Yeah. So talk to me about why you guys pulled the NG tube before you did the follow-up video swallow. So we pulled the NG tube before because we knew that she did not want a G. So this was a big thing too. So we knew that she did not want alternate means of nutrition hydration. So if she, if she failed the video swallow, I'm kidding. <laughs> if she did not do well in the video swallow study, we kind of already knew what our options were. So we knew either we were going to put her on a diet and she was going to go to rehab or she would eat and go on hospice or comfort care. So we kind of already knew which way the road would turn and she wouldn't need the NG tube. So that was one reason why we pulled it also because we wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. We didn't want there to be the NG tube there, like obstruct, not that it's obstructing anything, but it definitely changes the pharyngeal squeeze, the pharyngeal propulsion. So we wanted her to have that out. Thank you. Yeah, that's what I wanted you to speak to. Yeah, okay. I, I, I know some people are like, oh, they have an NG tube. They swallow just fine. And it's like, well, it can impact the swallow. So yeah, thank yeah. you for No, it definitely that. can. And we also made sure that we like pulled it that morning, like super duper early. We did our video like way after in the afternoon. So she had some time to recover from them pulling that out. Yeah. Oh, good. Awesome. What else? I mean, I guess we could talk about how each patient is different. So the pros and cons of, you know, alternate means of nutrition hydration is going to be different for every patient. And there is no, 
you know, straightforward policy or procedure. Every patient is definitely different. And we should be discussing the the cons of this with our patients so that they're educated and they know if they do have a G-tube, they know why they have it or that they know what's happening. So there really should be a clear explanation for everything with our patients because you always want to think of it as if it was your loved one, you would want to know what's happening, why it's happening and what the plan is. Yeah. So we, as speech pathologists, need to educate ourselves on what the pros and cons are so that when we're educating our family members, it's accurate. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's so important because I, I, I hate when I hear things like, you know, you'll get a peg tube and then you'll, you'll never aspirate again. You know, like, like you'll, you'll get a peg tube and you'll never get pneumonia ever again. You know, things like that. It's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. We need to you know, grad school is just not enough. We need to be continuously educating ourselves and it really falls on us. And not only do we need to educate our patients and our families, but we need to be educating the people that we work with, our staff, our physicians, our NPs and nurses, because clearly just like what we just talked about, about the surveys with the speech pathologists and the physicians, we all have very differing views on it. Yeah. And people will listen if you talk to them. So I think that's so important that we educate ourselves and then also educate the staff that we work with because it, that is going to be the wave, especially with all these baby boomers aging. We all need to be on the same page and we all need to be a team. A book that I recently read, which was so good, it was called Being Mortal. Did you read that? Yes, book? yes. It was so good. So yes, what it is said, so good. I highly recommend it. I think anybody listening to this podcast or anybody just in general who works in the medical field should read it. So just an excerpt from the book, he said, and this is nothing against nursing homes, it goes for acute care too, but he said, nursing homes devoted above all to safety, which we all know, right? Battle with residents over the food they're allowed to eat and the choices they're allowed to make. Doctors uncomfortable discussing patients' anxieties about death, fall back on false hopes and treatments that are actually shortening lives instead of improving them. And families go along with all of it because our families, they look to us for what the next step is. They look to us for what the plan of care is. And if we're not properly educated, if we're not on the same page as our physicians, as our nurses and nurse practitioners, palliative care teams, we're misinforming them. And it's yeah. really sad. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one thing that I that I hate is that some of the facilities that I work in have such a cohesive team. You know, the SLP the physicians, the DON, the DOR, everybody is on the same team and understands the roles. And then there's other facilities that I go into that it's like everybody's kind of working against each other. And it's like, why did the doctor do this? Why did the DON do that? You know, and and those are the ones that I feel like the only person that loses is the patient because they're just told so much conflicting information. And like, how the heck are you supposed to know what, you know, is kind of the best plan of care for you or which way you should go if if you're being told so much conflicting information. So I think that's why I'm so passionate about making sure that we are advocating and having good relationships with the people that we work with. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's so important. And your resources are amazing. You can just print them out and bring them to the staff and read from them. They're so great. And that really puts you on the same page as them. And as they appreciate the 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 knowledge. They appreciate the sharing of the information, at least in my facility, they definitely do. Because most of the time they don't know. And when you share it with them, they're like, oh, really? And they love it. So I think it's so important that we're all work as a team, as a multidisciplinary team, like we should be. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. 
So just like from other research articles, they talked about how organizations should mount educational campaigns to ensure that all staff are familiar with medical evidence and the outcomes of G-tubes or alternate means of machine hydration versus the opposite, which is hospice or comfort care and how to counsel and be there for your patients and their families and how to support them because that is so important. So I think just going forward, the real step is like the future. You have to educate yourself and your colleagues so that you can give the best patient care. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Caitlin. So do we cover everything? Thank you. I think so. All right. You know, tonight I'll probably be like, oh, I should have said this. That's okay. That's okay. I just want to say, I have just loved getting to know you and everything you've accomplished this year. So Caitlin came to me and joined my inner circle program back in December. And the things you've accomplished are like incredible. And I think you're like the, when people say like, I don't have time to do these things or like, why should I invest in my career? Or like, I don't have time to help to do that. It's like, I think of you and you're doing so many amazing things and I just love it. So I I don't know if you want to, can you like talk about some of the things you've done lately? Yes, of course. Thank you so much. So your inner circle is amazing. Thank you for creating such amazingness, (laughs) Um, not only within a circle, but the Med SLP Collective. It's so awesome. So through the inner circle, I've met some amazing people, which have just been such great support systems and also just great collaborations. I still talk to my I'm going to say this incorrectly, even though it's been like nine months, accountability. Yeah, We still talk all the time. I, I still talk it. with other people all the time, which is just so great to have this yeah. circle of people who I would have never met before yeah. and to have all of these different opinions and collaborations. And it's so important so that you're not on your own little island, especially when you're in another state and you're in a different facility. You just get such great feedback. It's so awesome. Yeah. And yeah. So this year... Well, I've done so many things. I know, I know. <laughs> I spoke at the New York City Dysphagia Study Group, which is held at the Manhattan VA with Monica Marks, who is also a great, awesome person. I she spoke is, at yes. the state convention in Louisiana. I'm hosting my own continuing education course in August yes. at the Long Island Speech Hearing Association for 0.3 ASHA CEUs. It's on palliative care. And dysphagia, awesome. so if anybody lives on Long Island and wants to come, it's in the beginning of August. I'm presenting at ASHA for two presentations with Emily, which will be great. Yes. And I am the chairperson for the New York State Speech Language Hearing Association's upcoming convention for medical. You are? Uh, dysphagia. Yes, I just found out last I night. didn't know that. <laughs> I just found out last night. <laughs> Um, so that's exciting. Awesome. Or co-chair, co-chair, sorry. Not awesome. Chair, yay. Yay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so great. all like awesome, exciting things. Even just here in the hospital, they started a team lavender, which is, I work for the Northwell Health System. So it is a group of employees who, if there's a tragedy or something happens within the facility or outside of the facility, it's for the employees though. So it's really kind of to help them to breathe. Yeah. And or grieve if something like that happened. So I am a, a leader of that. I'm a team lead of that. So just so many great things have happened this year. It's so amazing. Yeah. yeah. You also do you also lead um, or help out with like a hospice support group or something like that as well. I do. So 
I, I live out east, so East End Hospice is my local organization. So I've been volunteering with them for years. So they run a children's bereavement group. So last week, I t- took the week off of work, used my own PTO time, and I'm a camp counselor. It's a crazy, fun, exhausting week. It's I'm so, sure. I'm sure. So yeah. exhausting. And then I also do bereavement phone calls with them. So once a month, we call loved ones who have lost somebody on hospice, call them at one month, three months. And six months just to see how they're doing, offer any services if they need a support group, anybody to speak with. Um, just let them know that people are still thinking of them because that really yeah. makes all the difference. Yeah. Well, you're doing wonderful, incredible work in this world, Kaylin. I just, I love it. I've, I'm so happy to have gotten to know you and I love everything you've done. So uh, thank you so much. I'm so happy yes. too. It's been such a great year. Thank you. Good. Yeah. So anybody that says they don't have time, come listen to this episode of Kayla and hear what she's doing. So you, what is the quote? You make time for what's important to you. You 100%. Yes, you, you do. You do. I, yeah. People are like, have you watched Desperate Housewives lately? I'm like, no, I don't watch TV. It's not important to me. So you absolutely make time for what's important to you. So, you know, I have to say anytime anybody asks me if I've seen like, you know, did you see the episode? Did you see this TV show? I think of you because you said at one point when in one of your podcasts, or maybe it was one of the talks that you don't watch TV. And so I actually don't watch TV either anymore. And so I always think of you. Awesome. Awesome. Not that TV's horrible. I just, it's mindless. You know, I mean, I just would rather spend my time with my family or reading a book or something like that. So yeah, that's my, no, I totally yeah. agree and understand that it's just funny. Yeah. I always think of you. Oh, well, thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Caitlin. This was so wonderful. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. I appreciate it. Of course. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.